Hello and welcome to the NACA podcast. I'm Doug Church, Deputy Director of Public Affairs at the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. Today we have a real treat for you. Throughout the fall, we have begun a series of interviews with our newest group of Archie League Medal of Safety Award winners, each talking about their flight assists that were judged to be the best of last year. But today, we have a historic first. Not only do I get to introduce you to Shelley Bruner and Jamie McComer, our Western Pacific Region winners from San Diego Tower, but we also reached the pilot, Duffy Fainer, who graciously agreed to join us. It was his first chance to meet Shelley and Jamie, albeit in a virtual setting on Microsoft Teams. This is the first time we have the winners of the Archie League Award together with the pilot they helped in a conversation that took place before the awards banquet. Duffy's a professional announcer, and his voice is very familiar to controllers both at San Diego Tower and also nearby Montgomery Executive Tower, where he's based at. On an afternoon flight last April, Duffy encountered his first in-flight emergency of his 15-year flying career. He had a problem with the throttle in his Grumman American AA5A Cheetah at 1,200 feet and needed to get down fast. San Diego was the nearest airport. Hey, Liberty Tower, good afternoon. Cheetah 365, Papa Sierra, Mission Bay, 1,200. Hello, Cheetah 365, Papa Sierra, Lumber Tower. What's your request today? Okay, I'm having myself a, a problem with my throttle. It doesn't seem to be producing any power above 2,000 RPM. I'm able to uh, inch a climb here en route back to Montgomery. So I'd just like to maintain my position here over the VOR uh, and continue a climb, if able, for 5 miles here. Okay, and uh, Cheeto 365, that is approved, whatever you need to do. Here's my conversation with Shelly, Jamie, and Duffy. Well, Shelly, congratulations, by the way. I'm, uh, I'm very happy for you. Sorry this all had to happen during my, my drama, but at least it didn't happen for long. I know, right? I'm, I'm just glad that you're safe. That's what matters the most. I was feeling badly that I was uh, scaring the hell out of you as I, was, <laughs> uh, as I was coming across the approach end at 140 miles an hour in a full-on air show aerobatic side slip, which you probably yeah. don't get a, a chance to see if... If at all at uh, at Lindbergh, you were probably thinking, oh, my God, how is this going to end? And um, so I was feeling badly about that. I just wanted you to get on the ground. Like, I felt like you were floating over the runway for a long time. But all the other stuff, like, we have uh, aircraft, like, you know, little GAs that dive bomb into the runway all the time. So that part wasn't too scary. Yeah, that was a <laughs> it was long, mostly just not seeing <laughs> was a long, long float down the runway. I floated for a good mile down the runway because I got off. Yeah. Like seventy five hundred feet down from the uh, uh, from the the displaced threshold, and uh, I was wondering when it was all going to finally end. Duffy, why don't you lead us off and tell us about yourself and uh, your your career and also your time in, in an airplane over these years? Um, professionally, I work as a uh, special event MC and corporate uh, stage host. Um, game show host, auctioneer, disc jockey. I do voiceovers for uh, industrial videos, instructional videos, medical videos, on hold messages, and all that kind of stuff. So that's my professional background. And I've been flying since 2005. I've been skydiving since uh, 1974. And I grew up under the uh, approach path of 24 left at Montreal International Airport. So for me, uh, airplanes was a pretty significant chunk of my life right from my beginning of my childhood. And you had told me a few days ago when we talked that uh, you actually grew up wanting to be an air traffic controller. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, yeah, I wanted to be just like Shelly one day. Um, yeah, I got myself an air traffic control receiver for my 13th birthday. And from that moment on, I was glued to the radio and glued to the to the skies and the charts and phoning the poor controllers at Montreal Tower up late at night to try to get my answers, my questions answered. And uh, was determined that if I could learn to speak French, which was required in Quebec, that when I turned 18, I would go to the academy and become an air traffic controller. Yeah, so half of the half of the fun of flying for me now is having a um, a professional and cordial uh, communication with the controllers and um, making my flight um, successful in that regard. Not just landing, not just landing safely, but also knowing that I had a good good communication with uh, with all the controllers en route. Excellent, uh, Shelley. Uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, so I joined, well, my dad was in the Navy. He was um, a mechanic. And so like I grew up around Miramar and airplanes. So I had like a fascination from all of that. And then when it came time for deciding what to do after high school, college wasn't my thing. So I joined the army because they had the most helicopters. I had a fascination for helicopters. And I did that for five and a half years. I did a contract in Afghanistan for, I think it was like 18 months. And then I got picked up by the FAA, and I've been with them for about 11 years now. Most of and it you, at Lindbergh. Oh, that was my next question. Was was you been at, at Lindbergh the entire time? Uh, no, I started out at the Traycon, actually, <laughs> at SoCal Traycon. But I was there for a year, and then they offered me, which Lindbergh is actually my dream job, so they offered me that, and I went in and took it. <laughs> Outstanding. And Jamie, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I just came across the job one day. Somebody had told me about it, and they're like, you should apply. I did, and I've been doing it for 12 years now. I started out uh, originally um, in Oakland Center, and then I did that for a couple of years, and then I came down here, and I've been at Lindbergh for about 10 years now. So, Duffy, most of your experience in, in the San Diego region, you fly mostly in and out of Montgomery. Is that correct? Yeah, Montgomery is my home base. Let's get into the particulars of this event now in last April. You had taken off from Montgomery and were flying west. Is that correct? Yeah, I was doing my regular uh, daily routine flight, which is uh, head off of Montgomery and head uh, west of the, the Miramar airspace toward the Mormon Temple, uh, maneuver around uh, the Torrey Pines area, come back up the shoreline, maneuver around La Jolla, La Jolla Cove, and come back into the airspace via Crystal Pier, Mission Bay, just north of uh, the Lindbergh airspace, about six miles west of, uh, of the Montgomery airspace, and come back in that way. And uh, that, it, it's been a, it had been a quiet year up to that point, uh, with COVID shutting down a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the flying. So it was very quiet on that day. But prior to that, that was my, my 80th flight. Um, in 2020, uh, and at that point, that was April 24th. So I was flying pretty regularly. So let's talk about then when, when you first noticed that the throttle was a problem and, and, and there's a particular part on your aircraft, um, which is the uh, the A5 Grumman, Air, uh, Grumman American Cheetah. There's a part, certain part that you had described um, as, as having been the problem here, a detached throttle rod, do I have that correct? Um, it's a detached uh, throttle bearing, what attaches the actual throttle cable to the carburetor arm. 
So it looks like a trailer ball and hitch, which you might see in a photo. Um, so on the carburetor arm is a ball, and on the end of the throttle rod is a hitch that captures the ball. And you can't really get a good look at it uh, unless you fully disassemble it, perhaps at every annual or any time the carburetor is serviced. And even though 10 mechanics over the last uh, 10 years of wear and the part is 20 years old, uh, might have had a chance to disassemble it and get a full-on look at it. They either didn't or didn't detect the fact that it was wearing to the point where the hitch was about to just pop off the ball because there was no longer any uh, physical uh, retention for that. And so at the moment that I crossed Crystal Pier and put in the throttle after contacting Montgomery Tower, I realized that uh, the throttle wasn't being effectuated by the by the knob any longer and it was stuck at the uh, 2000 rpm point which was pretty much enough to uh, enable me to sustain level flight but it wasn't going to let me climb so it turned out and at that point what was your altitude um i crossed over crystal pier at about um 800 feet to 900 feet in a climb and uh coasted in that climb up about another 300 feet to 1200 feet and when i checked in with uh with Lindbergh tower when i was in distress over mission bay i had 1200 feet at that point so in listening to the audio what struck me when when you first called Lindbergh was just how calm you were in reporting what was happening can you but but, but realistically what were you feeling when this problem arose and had you encountered any kind of an in-flight situation similar to this before i had had moments of wonder of consternation wondering what the hell was going on with my plane uh which was quick quick and brief to resolve itself um in this moment i just felt dread because i knew this was most likely not going to resolve itself um i've had skydiving emergencies in the past i've had eight uh, parachute malfunctions and one um emergency water land ocean landing uh but this is my first uh, actual in-flight emergency in an aircraft in 15 years so i knew that um i knew that i wasn't in a good position to try to get back to montgomery field which was six miles away because i was stuck at an altitude that i would have had rising terrain on en route back to montgomery field and that didn't seem like a good idea flying over uh, houses and suburbs and and buildings. Um, so I called Lindbergh Tower and talked to Shelly and told her I had an issue and needed to uh, sort it out and see if I could get a climb going. So if I did have a little bit more altitude, I have more options for gliding and uh, sustained flight. Um, she uh, basically said whatever you need which gave me a lot of uh confidence and sense that somebody was there backing me up despite the fact that i was in the cockpit all alone with my uh with my sad little airplane and uh coming around the turn i realized i wasn't getting any altitude and actually the rpm gauge was starting to drop and at that point i realized that i didn't know how long this thing was going to sustain itself in flight and i better make a decision before it was too late to glide anywhere so i had fiesta island below me which in mission bay park in san diego is a fairly 
open and desolate, uh, maybe two mile stretch of sand uh, that terminates into hard packed dirt where it meets the um, the water. So I knew I could go down there. And when I was um, deliberating about landing there as an as an out, that's when Shelley uh, came in and asked me if I was still with her. And I think she was asking me because she had traffic that was departing. She had an Embraer that was departing and another uh, 737 that was coming in, which was United 1869, and just wanted to know what my situation was. And at that point, I realized that uh, I was it was decision time. So when she said runway nine is available, and I was looking at 27, which was another mile and a half to two miles away if I was going to approach it from that direction, it gave me an option I wasn't really considering. And I realized that, um, but my hesitation was I didn't want to tie up their, their nice big, <laughs> their nice big <laughs> airport. <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy, you know, that left a big smoking hole in the middle of their, uh, their runway mm -hmm. and uh, closed down their, their runway for two hours. And I didn't want to be, um, yeah, I just didn't want to be a, an issue or be in the way. But Shelly definitely made me feel welcome and made me feel like they were they were all there to to support me, um, which definitely helped support my decision to make a, a run in that direction. So it was about a mile, a mile and a half to two miles away to the point that I knew I was going to be able to make the runway. Um, and when I got there, I was just smoking over the approach end at about 140 miles an hour. <laughs> And killed the engine, killed the throttle, and then killed the um, the magnetos, the ignition source to the uh, to the engine, and just put the plane in a really really steep slip, watching the watching Terminal Two go by, and then watching Terminal One go by, and thinking to myself that uh, I just got to keep this thing really steeply banked, and sooner or later it's got to run out of airspeed. And um, ultimately it did, it took me about a good mile of being in that side slip until things finally uh, slowed down enough for me to flatten out and put it down. And I was able to exit at, uh, I think, Charlie four. And at that point, my main concern was getting off the runway so they could open up the runway and the, uh, the airport again. Well, Shelly, let's pick it up from there, from your point of view. And it, this was also evident on the, the tape is that Duffy almost seems surprised that landing at San Diego was an option and not having to go back <laughs> to Montgomery. Uh, do you encounter other small planes that either scheduled or unscheduled need to land it? That's emergency or any other situation. She can actually speak on this one. She actually had a T-34, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, I actually had something similar happen quite a few months before where I had a T-34 offshore losing engine. And we had to bring him in, and he landed on runway nine. So, uh, was this a military T thirty four or a civilian T thirty four? I believe it was a military T thirty four. Yeah. Wow. So it's not super common, but I mean, it's it definitely on occasion. Yeah, she had seen it happen before. You know, in general, um, general aviation pilots are not well trained, uh, practiced, or prepared to deal with emergencies they're going to want to get back to where their car is where their maintenance facility is where their loved ones are where their hangar is 
So that's the first thing they think of is trying to get somewhere more convenient. Um, and we've seen a lot of episodes lately where pilots overflew perfectly good airport airports uh, with the intention of trying to get elsewhere um, and uh, didn't end well for either of them. So that's one thing that that aviators could do better. And the other thing is we're you know typically afraid of or intimidated by uh, the big class Bravo airports and don't want to you know, infringe or impose or be a burden. And uh, I would certainly encourage uh, aviators in the, f especially after my incident, to ask for help and expect that uh, controllers are going to make getting you down safely as their first priority. Well, Shelly, take us back then through through what you both experienced in the tower. And Shelly, from the point at which you received the call, and then the things that go on in your head that need to be done and Jamie then follow up because obviously you were handling so many things um, on the on the back end right next to her as well. So, so Shelly, you want to kind of talk about what, what all transpired there? Yeah, um, I actually knew something was up like on his first transmission because, you know, he's got a very familiar voice, very familiar, you know, aircraft call sign and all this and that, whatever. So we're very familiar with him coming in to the airspace, but he always calls like with all of his requests all at once, you know? So it's like, I want the taxiway Delta, you know, whatever it is. And so when he just called me with his call sign, I'm like, okay, this is gonna be different. Um, so he just, you know, said he had issues with the throttle. Um, you know, I think like instantly the adrenaline just started kicking in because then it's like, okay, well, now I have to like, you know, figure out what's going to happen. What's my plan A, B, and C, you know, kind of thing. Um, so he was just circling there and I'm like, okay, I don't have any other traffic. We were really slow, you know, like we hardly had any arrivals and departures. So, you know, it really wasn't uh, too difficult to, to make the plan. Um, and then uh, it looked like he was heading towards uh, Montgomery. And so I had called Montgomery on the landline, said, hey, I got Cheeto over here. He's got issues. Are you talking to him? They're like, yeah, we're talking to him. I'm like, all right, cool. But then um, he started to turn back south, uh, just uh, east of the VOR. So then that's when I had reached out to him. And I had already had my Embraer. Like, so my Embraer was supposed to be a northwest departure. I'd already had him on a straight out just because I wanted to keep him in bay completely. Um, you know, and then that's when I offered him runway nine. And uh, as soon as he said he wanted it, I was like, all right, there's the plan. That's it. We're sticking to it. You know, thankfully, my the Embraer was already uh, upwind and the United, you know, they were about a mile out, I think, on final when I just did the replay. I thought they were farther out. But when I did that, when I watched the replay, he was a bit closer. But yeah, it, it all worked out. I mean, I'm thankful that we weren't busier. You know, I, I don't know that, you know, I would have had that plan in my mind. Um, you know, as smoothly as everything seemed to have happened. Yeah, Shelly was quick. As soon as I said, yeah, I, I'd like to make a run for it, she immediately said, United 1869, go around. And he came back on a moment later, went, who's that for? Like, <laughs> couldn't possibly believe on a mile final with, you know, nobody flying in the entire country at that moment that he had to make a go around. And a friend of mine who lived uh, on the approach path to Lindbergh, said that he felt his building shake and uh, switched on his radio to see what was going on because he knew something was must have been happening if that 
seven three was going around on such uh, short final. Oh my! See, yes, Jelly was quick. Boy, she snapped right right into business when uh, when I said I needed to come in. She made things happen in a hurry. And, and Jamie, Tim, your checklist, your mental going through all the things that needed to be done on your end as well. I think at that point you're just kind of listening to what's going on around you and just picking up all send the little bits that needs to be done you know she sends the guy around so you get on the line you call and you let everybody know this guy's going and why he's doing it and you know clearing as much room and taking as much of the kind of like the paperwork part of it off of her as possible you know making sure that um we had another <clears throat> controller in the room who had just kind of come up at the time so it was like okay you know like hey pull a crash phone make sure that if we need any kind of services or anything like that this way everybody is moving so that everything goes as quickly and as smoothly as possible for for all of those parts and trying to just alleviating any additional workload or stress on Shelly because she's that's a stressful <laughs> situation so for everybody involved so you're trying to make it as, as easy and as seamless as possible yeah. We were calling like North Island, calling approach, like, hey, we're sending him around. You know, they're like, why? <laughs> because people want to know. Again, yeah. a mile five, there's you know seemingly no traffic in the sky, stuff like that. One thing for the listeners here for the podcast, uh, for purposes of setting the scene. So, so Duffy, you described earlier where you were in Mission Bay and where Fiesta Island Park, and and that being an initial option for you that you thought as a last resort, and that's approximately two to three miles north northwest of Lindbergh is that correct uh yeah yeah it's a pretty straight shot from there over uh, Mission Bay Park which is mostly open water tide land um so I had lots of outs and options uh in that area uh and except for some industrial buildings and an apartment building or two en route uh to the button of runway nine uh, once the wa the water was uh, behind me, it was pretty much a clear shot. Take us through though the, the emotions coming in though. I mean, it, it was a sense of relief that you had runway nine given to you, I'm sure. But then the actual approach and in leading up into the to the landing, um, what was going through your head? Uh, mainly, how long is this engine going to keep on running, and how far am I going to be able to glide? And um that was mainly my concern was how long is this going to keep on running for and am i going to be able to make the airport um once i got there it was more a sense of oh my god i am screaming over the end of this runway how am i going to shut this thing down um you know in a perfect scenario i like to think that i could have killed the engine you know a mile out and glided down to a perfect uh a perfect uh landing and gotten off at the first taxiway um, but my takeaway is, again, is if you're going to have a drama, you want to go to the longest runway amount of civilization and have as many services waiting for you as possible. Um, if I had tried to make it back to Montgomery and had I made it, um, and try to make that same maneuver, I would have ended up in the, uh, in the in and out burger on the other side of the freeway from runway, uh, from runway five or runway two, eight, right or left. Um, having fences around the perimeter of Montgomery Field would not have ended up well for me in an airplane that was, you know, basically out of control when it came to controlling my speed. Let me ask 
uh, Shelley and Jamie too, because you made such a great point earlier about the, the, your workload and, and the amount of air, aircraft in the air uh, at that point in April, uh, when we're about a month into the COVID pandemic at that point. Um, what was the staffing like in the tower? Had, the, had you gone to different staffing levels because of COVID and the, the, the safe situation that we had in place uh, nationwide, or what was it like to, at your facility? Yes, we had um, already been broken down to our crews that were still working. So we were broken down to ABC crews. Um, most of the crews got four people. We got the short end of the stick. We only had three. Um, but I think we had been on that schedule for at least two to three weeks or something like that. Where we, the three of us were working five days and then we would have 10 days at home. Um, and so, you know, things were crazy slow work-wise, traffic-wise were really slow. Yeah. And the staffing in the cab was minimal at the point. It was um, it was me and Shelly in the cab at the time. Um, again, it just happened to be at a time where we were starting a changeover where somebody was gonna come in and I believe you were being- You were getting relieved. I was being relieved. So it was like, we just happened to have like an extra body in the cab at the time. Yeah, he had just nice. walked up. just kind of like how the timing worked <laughs> out. But we were at that point, definitely minimal staffing and trying to do as, as minimal with each other as possible you know because it was so new and it was a brand new situation and everybody was like still a lot of fear and unknown about COVID so yeah they had changed our schedule so there was no overlap with other crews or very minimal overlap I should say um, normally on a normal schedule you know we would you know work with each other and different crews throughout the day because you know we would come in at all different hours but they changed it so it was just three of us for eight hours straight next three come in three or four come in kind of thing so it was it was a great schedule for you know um lessening any uh contact with each other but again the staffing was very low duffy let me go back to one of the takeaways that you mentioned earlier as far as the calmness on the part of Shelly and Jamie and the phraseology that Shelly used on the line with you and in particularly saying whatever you need. Um, you made a point of telling me a few days ago when we first chatted that it's those kinds of things you want to hear as a pilot and, and talk about that. What, how the importance of phraseology plays into a situation like this from your point of view. Um, I, I got that from the Montgomery controller as well. He he said we're here whatever you need he said we're here for you and shelly said uh, whatever you need and um that reassurance uh certainly was helpful and supportive and putting me in a more uh calm state uh in the midst of trying to sort things out all by myself it's the problem when you're having a, a parachute malfunction or an aircraft mal malfunction is you're on your own and having to make your own decisions and having to make them fast um I knew I had more time than having a skydiving malfunction. Um, so I wanted to make the right decisions. And yeah, so so her her invitation um, to come to her airport and her reassurance that they were there to help me on a personal level yeah, definitely gave me an extra sense of, uh, of common reassurance. And Shelly, from your perspective on that very same topic, um, those are the kinds of things from your training and experience, I gather, that you want to make sure that he knows and any other pilots that you also deal with in these kind of situations know that 
these are the options, the, trying to put them at ease, trying to you know, be that calm professional voice that air traffic controllers are trained to be. Can you talk about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, you don't, you can't really train for these, you know, stressful situations. We have the 7110 that gives us our prescribed phraseology, which you mentioned my phraseology, and that's been like one of the things that I harp on myself about because I definitely should have been a little cleaner on some of the things that I had said, mostly to uh, the United and the Sky West. But, um, you know, it's you, you think about these situations and I've gone to the Archie League Awards, the, the Communicating for Safety event uh, for many years, I think six or seven times, you know, so I've seen the playbacks of other controllers and pilots. And it's like you always you know, hope that when that situation comes along that, you know, you will be that calm voice, that you will be that, uh, you know, that helping hand um, to that pilot. Cause it's, that's our whole job, right? Is to, to keeping them safe, you know? So you're emotionally invested when, you know, all of a sudden you hear, you know, a pilot in distress, you're just kind of like, okay, this is like, we got to get him safe. Like we got to do everything we possibly can, you know? So your mind's racing, but you also know that um, you want to keep your voice calm, you know, because if you sound nervous, it might, you know, come off uh, nervous to them and they might not have, you know, as much of a secure feeling in the situation versus, you know, if you're calm, then, you know, most likely it's just going to keep the whole situation balanced. So but yeah, I mean, but it was what he had said before about, you know, um, he wants about pilots, you know, they want to go to their airport, they want to go back to where their car is and where their family is and stuff like that. And in that moment, all you want to do is get them on the ground so that they can get back to those things so that they can keep going and, and, and doing that. So I think, yeah, I think in those moments, like your priority is just everything I have to do to make sure that this person is safe. Let's do that. Jamie and I have kind of joked about the situation where, what was our thing? Or we were like, we would much rather him be safe on our runway. Like, even if it stopped our traffic, anything like that, like we would much rather have him like have a solid runway than to try to land in the dirt or the sand. And I think we were yeah. saying like, come here, come here, come be safe, <laughs> come be with us. You know, like, you know, that's like, that's your instinct is yeah. just wanting, you know, to, to get them down the ground safe. And so, yeah. And, and one question for Duffy, at what point then after you're on the ground, Duffy, I assume you really wanted to find out quickly what happened to your aircraft to solve this mystery that it happened to. Is that right? Well, I was pretty convinced that I knew what I was going to find once I opened the cowling and, and looked in there. I could tell just from all the play and the throttle handle um, that there was a mechanical disconnect there. So I was pretty clear that whatever exactly the linkage looked like, that it was gonna be separated from the carburetor. But I did learn that um, there is no default position for the carburetor. You'd think that there would be, that if that mechanical connection uh, was um, disconnected, that the carburetor would default to fully open or fully in the middle so that it wouldn't necessarily progressively uh, close and you would end up with zero power. But apparently, you know, the 80-year-old engines that we're uh, relegated to flying with are not uh, modified in any way, shape, or form to do that. So it turns out that if that linkage breaks, you're stuck with, you know, wherever you happen to be at the moment that it broke. And for me, it was uh, arriving at Crystal Pier and after doing my yanking and banking and, and pulling in and pushing, 
Um, just when I pushed that back in to get my climb going to get back to Montgomery, that's the moment that it broke. So it was opportune to some extent that that was the moment that it broke and it could have happened at 500 feet when I was uh, along Torrey Pines with no outs except for maybe a beach. Um, so you never know where it's going to happen. For me, I was fortunate that it happened where it happened and that uh, Shelly and Jamie were were working the tower cab on that shift. And one more question for, for you, Duffy. You Throughout this conversation, you mentioned several takeaways that are important, and I know it's important to you to 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 learn from this episode and to teach other pilots and and uh, everybody who will be listening to this. And um, are there any other takeaways that I that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention now? Well, a few a few rants include the FAA and their antiquated process of approving uh, new and better and more modern parts for these general aviation aircraft that are you know, 100 years old and are using parts that were developed in the 1920s, that it shouldn't take so much paperwork and make it so difficult for mechanics and owners to step up um, to put on more contemporary parts on their aircraft. And number two would be for pilots that if you're having a drama, you know, don't, don't wait to try to troubleshoot it, just get it on the ground uh, at the nearest airport that has a runway that's long enough to uh, accommodate your particular drama and um, tell the controllers that you're having a problem and don't try to worry or don't be consumed with worrying about what the FAA is going to think or what kind of trouble you might be in afterwards, but let the controllers know that you've got a problem and they will jump to making sure that you're uh, accommodated and on the ground uh, quickly and safely. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Shelly, any uh, closing thoughts from you, things you want to add about uh, about this event? <laughs> I think we've mostly covered everything. You know, I'm definitely happy for this opportunity to be able to talk to Duffy directly and get his play on things. It's it's really neat to, to hear the pilot side and hear everything that, you know, they were going through and what their thought process was, you know, because, you know, it's, I'm not a pilot. I, I, had like a couple of hours many years ago in a in a twin Cessna, but other than that, like I don't have much experience, you know, flying. So it's always really nice to hear that other side and and to really hear what you know they're dealing with and what exactly his issue was. You know, it's it's kind of nice to to hear um, just some more of the full story. So I wanted to say also that the the crew at Lindbergh Tower are amazingly accommodating and professional and cordial considering um, the inexperience that gets thrown at them from general aviation pilots that are coming from all over San Diego County uh, and how many training airplanes there are in the air in the air right now how many people blunder into their airspace asking for uh, bay tours and other things that don't really have <laughs> don't really have official names that they have to decipher and sort out what these pilots want and the pilots are asking for them in non-conventional uh, terminology and they have to get them in and through and over in some very tight confines with a lot of conflicting traffic and they do an amazing job and they never yell and they never scream and they never raise their voice and uh, it always amazes me how um, professionally and cordially they can do their job under extremely difficult and complex circumstances 
And I think that if they, you know, if, they, if it was otherwise, you'd have pilots that would probably never graduate with their private pilot's license because they'd be <laughs> so scared and intimidated and turned off by the entire world of aviation. And uh, it's a testimony to just how well-trained and professional they are that they're able to, to pull this off every day. So thank you very much, Jamie and Shelley, for making my flying experience um, so positive every time I come into your airspace. Thank you thank for you. always knowing exactly what you want and how to say it. Dealing with pilots that, you know, know exactly what to say and what how they want it is, is always, you know, uh, very nice. But, yeah, we definitely do deal with, you know, more unfamiliar pilots that are a little bit more um, apprehensive or don't really know what to say. So it has its challenges. Being there for 10 years, we're pretty used to it. <laughs> I'll always try and do my best when I'm working with you guys. And I, I will do my best not to have another drama in your airspace. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what, we're always there for you. Thanks, you guys. Thank well, you. on that note, uh, I would like to thank each of you for taking the time to do this. What a pleasure and an honor to be a part of this conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for organizing it. Sure. Take nice care, everybody. Me. Nice meeting you finally, Shelly, and you too, <laughs> Talk to you. Talk to you on 118.3. All right. See you then. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the NACA podcast. For more information about this flight assist and our other winners of the Archie League Medal of Safety Awards, please go to our website at NACA.org. Thank you.